What we've got here is failure to communicate. Freedom. Freedom? Well, sign away my freedom. Why, this is ridiculous. Don't be corny, brother. <laughs> sure, our system of free enterprise isn't perfect. But before we throw it away for some imported double talk, let's turn the clock back a few years to see what it's done for us. With your host, Mike Paul. Hey guys, welcome back to Paul's to the Wall. I am your host, Mike Paul. Joined, of course, by my brother, Nick Paul. And once again, we are joined by Jason Stapleton. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Good. Well, great to have you. So the reason I asked you back on is... You've been doing a couple episodes lately regarding these topics and kind of want to pick your brain a little further on them. But as far as just some of this insane volatility we've seen in the stock market with Bitcoin, real estate, um, and even, you know, particularly stocks like Tesla, um, like I believe you pointed out that a company that, from what I understand, loses money on the cars that they that they make, um, like what exactly is driving some of these stocks so high right now when so many people are out of work and, and all this madness going on with the, the QE uh, and stimulus packages. Um, what, what exactly do you think is, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of on the horizon here and, and what's kind of driving all this irrational behavior? Well, a couple, a couple of points I would make. I, I think we do everyone a massive disservice by trying to assign some sort of causality to, to, to the, the reason why the markets move. So <clears throat> the truth is nobody knows why it's happening. We can make some assumptions based on what we're seeing, but the, the fact is, is that we live, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day, Infinite Loops, and I can't remember the guy's name who hosts it, but he was, uh, he was, he was talking to a guy named Rory Sutherland, who I absolutely, uh, absolutely love because he's he's interested in the same things that i'm interested in which are which is applied behavioral economics essentially and um the, he said he said something really profound i actually wrote it down it was so powerful he said we are a deterministic people living in a probabilistic world. Essentially, we're always looking for the cause of whatever happened, when in reality, a lot of times it's just the probability of the outcome relative to all of the other considerations. And so when I take a look at, say, take, for example, Tesla, right? Tesla is a company that, uh, as far as I know, they may reinvest the money, but certainly they're losing, they're, they're not making money on the production of cars. That's not where the bulk of their profit came from. Bulk of the profit came from selling, selling off, uh, what are essential car, essentially carbon emissions, uh, uh, uh carbon, what do you call it? it they basically they're required certain cars car manufacturers in states are required to um are required to produce a certain number of electric vehicles and if they don't they either have to pay a fee or they can buy carbon credits essentially ev credits from a company that does overproduce well tesla obviously overproduces because 100 percent of their cars are electric cars and so they're making a you know two billion dollars or whatever last year by selling EV credits to these other car manufacturers, and it doesn't really matter because even if you look at the the the, the total value of the company, I think they're valued at more than the other nine car companies underneath them combined. There's just there's no possible way that you can logically justify the valuation of a Tesla, unless 
you take a look at the amount of money that's been created and has been pumped into the stock market and you have a lot of people who don't have a place to put their money and are just banking on the fact that things are going to increase significantly over time and are trying to pick the ones that they think are going to do the best job of that. I think when it comes to things like Bitcoin and probably Tesla too, what you really have is a lot of dumb money now that is, that's in the market. And, and I say that when I say dumb money, I just mean people who don't really know what they're doing, who, who are trying to jump on what they see as really big returns and the opportunity to make a quick buck and who really don't have any concept of, of what's actually involved in, in, in trading or investing money. And anytime you get that many people with that much extra money, remember we've created our, our government and our central bank have created a total of about $12.1 trillion of brand new money that has all essentially gone directly into the economy. When that money has to go somewhere and those people are now throwing it at the only place where you can continue to get yield, which is the stock market or Bitcoin or the like. There's a lot of people who, who are now paper rich because they, they now are looking at their Bitcoin account balances and they're like, man, I put $10,000 in when it was trading at 10 grand and now I've got 5X that and they're feeling like they, they're feeling like they got a couple of bucks in their pocket. And they're very quickly going to realize that paper profits are not the same thing as, as realized profits. And, uh, and so I think what is really driving all of the markets right now is an irrationality uh, set up that is compounded by a lot of cheap money. I mean, we've got, have you guys heard of this, these spec companies they've got now? They're, they're essentially just shell companies with no assets and, and no, uh, no revenues that they take to Wall Street and take money against so that they can then go find a company that they think will be profitable and buy it up. It's, it is, we're now dealing with a level of gambling that is never before seen in any market in any point in human history. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. wild. Now, Jason, one, tell me if this is a valid way of conceptualizing when we talk about market bubbles and, and asset bubbles and these kind of things where you know, let's go back to last March when the stock market's crashing and everybody's kind of panicking and people are struggling to find liquidity to, you know, make sure they're okay to make payroll and everything. And then, you know, the Fed starts with obviously 0% and then all of the QE and all of the asset purchasing and all of this propping up of the financial institutions. And all of a sudden we start to see the housing market just start booming and booming and booming and the stock or sorry, stock market and housing market both. And the Fed is growing its balance sheet at an insane rate. I mean, it makes QE look like, you know, a high school dance. Like it's just, yeah. it's insane. And everybody feels good again because in March they watched their net worth and their equity in their homes. Possibly it didn't actually crash, but they're noticing that their entire net worth is at worth is at stake. And then all of a sudden <clears throat> their, their fears were kind of qualmed because in a matter of months, everything starts growing and then everybody feels good again. But it's like all of that underlying reality of, you know, if the market's really crashing, then there's not enough resources to go around for everybody to realize their wealth. And then now, like you said, on paper, they're feeling good again. But the way I think of it is, okay, let's say everybody wanted to cash out their 401ks, you know, take out the equity in their house and try to enjoy that wealth. What happens if everybody did that at the same time? And the way I think of it is like, okay, there's not enough goods and resources and services in the economy to actually satisfy things at their current purchasing power. So again, it's just making people feel like they're better off than they really are. 
And it's crazy to me that you look at politicians and, you know, Fed chairman and all these people that are in, you know, powerful positions that don't seem to just acknowledge this elephant in the room that we can print 25% of all US dollars ever. And we just act like there's no way this can come back and bite us. Well, I just think I I blame I blame us as a society for for not being better educated on these things because we could say oh our education system doesn't teach this but the fact is this is not an easy thing to understand it really is a, more, a much more complicated than anyone wants to wants to admit um, and I, I've done my best on my show I guess to try and explain it as make it as simple to understand as possible but what you pointed out is is really important and I think I, I would even go a bit further is that the the Federal Reserve just didn't step in. You know, after the housing crisis of 2008, 2009, there was this, there was the Dodd-Frank Act. They had all of these new requirements on banks. Hey, you got to have enough liquidity in your bank account. You got in your banks and you're, if not, you got to borrow money from the Fed. So they were really trying to like recapitalize these banks and set a new standard of capitalization in these, in these uh, entities. Then of course, we hit uh, 2020 and COVID strikes. And the Fed just didn't come in and say, hey, here's $10 trillion just to we're going to buy assets with it. They literally went back to these same banks that they said it, it's essential now for you guys to be cap well capitalized so that we don't have another financial collapse. And they told the same banks, don't worry about it. Everything, remember everything we said in 2008? No, you can forget about that. So we want you spending and handing out as much money as humanly possible. And don't worry about it. We got your back. So what the, the Fed did was they told every bank in the United States, loan out all of your money, keep no reserves, we will take care of it. And then they pumped a bunch of money into the stock market. They bought bonds with it. They, they gave it to, they gave a, several trillion dollars to our, uh, to our own treasury and that they handed out in, in handouts to people who are out of work. And at the end of the year, you got $12 trillion now that's circulating in an economy. That's, that is so dangerous. I, I don't think people truly understand. So where does that money go? Because if you look around and you ask the Fed, they're like, well, consumer price inflation isn't really, we're not seeing it. Well, of course you're not seeing it because mom, pa, kettle, who, uh, who got their $1,400 stimulus check because they were out of work, they actually had to spend that money. And that money then got transferred back to people who didn't have to spend it. Small business owners, large business owners, banks, big institutions, right? So the money gets funneled to the poor people. The poor people end up spending the money. It goes right back to the wealthy. And where do the wealthy stick their money? They stick it in real estate. They stick it in the stock market. Okay. So where do we see the two big asset bubbles right now? Those two places you're seeing more uh, the 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 price of home ownership is going through the roof. We're seeing prices as high as forty percent year over year in places like Connecticut, California. Out here, it's like twenty percent. And at the same time, the stock market's hitting all-time highs. Why? There's nothing technically that you could point to, nothing economically that you could point to that says we should be anywhere near these levels. What there is is a massive amount of money that is making its way back into the hands of people who don't need to spend it. And so they're investing it in the only places that they know where they can get a return, which is the stock market and I said the housing market. Interesting. Yeah. On your latest episode, you, you talked about your fears of hyperinflation, which is something that, you know, anyone that's in Austrian economics has kind of been screaming from the rooftops since, you know, this stimulus started with, uh, you know, obviously with COVID, but even before then. But I've really been trying to, uh, since last year, even when everything broke out, try to imagine, you know, what, what, what might happen if we didn't see such hyperinflation and, and, 
what the best move with your money to, would be to try to protect your wealth. And one thing I really appreciated what you said was that you're not pretending to have the answers. You, you know, you have an educated guess, but nobody really knows. Um, the one uh, area I was really trying to rack my brain about was like real estate. Let's say you own a home. Let's say you bought a house for 200 grand, put 20%, you know, $40,000 down on it, got a good interest rate. Now, what happens if hyperinflation does start to enter the market and this house goes up to 400, 500 grand? Um, is that is that a safe place to have 20% of the home ownership in, or is it a liability at that point? And on top of that, is there going to be a trade-off where people, uh, you know, are afraid to put their money into, into real estate because the prices are inflating so rapidly. So would that hurt real estate values? It's been kind of like a, a paradox. I've been trying to figure out in my mind of how that would play out. And if that's a, a safe place to have any of your, your wealth stored. Well, it's, it's such a difficult question to answer too, because we say, well, should I buy real estate? Well, maybe where and when, Right. So it, buying real estate in Southern California in Los Angeles right now is is maybe not the best decision if you're looking for if you're looking for a, you know, a short term hedge or you're looking for a quick uh, a quick flip in uh, in real estate because people are leaving the city by the droves. San Francisco right now is a terrible place to own real estate. Uh, but if you're in in the Midwest and some places that haven't been hit as hard with really excessive increases in real estate prices and it's more stable. Uh, also, what are you buying? Are you buying single family homes, multifamily homes? Are you buying land? So, so much goes into that question. And, and I think we try and compare, oh, real estate all gets piled into this same box. And it's, it, there's, it is as diverse and as difficult to talk about as, as anything. It's like, well, what stock should I buy? Well, I don't know. How old are you? Like, what is, you see what I'm saying? And so um, I think that Land is typically, if we're talking in broad brush strokes, land and property are pretty good hedges against inflation. Now, uh, the, there are people who have money will always be looking for it and God's not making any more of it. But again, you got to be very careful about what you buy and when you buy. Any good real estate guy will tell you it's uh, you know it's how you buy the property that matters. You need to find the thing that's undervalued, the thing that nobody's looking at. You got to you got to look in advance. For example, I live in in uh, in Los Angeles, but I live in kind of this neat little pocket between Culver City and and West Hollywood. And it is a it's it's now becoming gentrified. And I literally live on the road where it it shifts. So you go across the road from where I live and you have not great area. Right. It's still very old. It's, it's very run down. There's there's higher crime. But on my side of the street is a lot of very wealthy people who are buying property, renovating homes. And it's a beautiful, beautiful neighborhood. You got to have the foresight to say, you know what, I'm going to buy across the road because I believe that they're going to continue to start building out that direction. And so for the future, I think, as, as I said, a hedge against inflation, uh, Milton Friedman said it best, you know, the only the only remedy to high inflation is high living. Just spend the money as fast as you can. I hope that we don't see the type of hyperinflation that a lot of people are looking at, but I it will have to do with whether or not the velocity of money picks up when people go back to work. Uh, I am very, very concerned about it. And as I said on my show, I don't know what the right choice is. Gold is probably a good investment in in a, in a hyperinflated environment, anything that is tethered to the dollar. Um, so Bitcoin would, of course, increase in, in value as, as we saw inflation. But Bitcoin is really a different discussion 
altogether because what's driving Bitcoin right now isn't actually any fundamental information or data. Anybody who tells you that's lying to you or they're, they're just trying to, they're advancing the Bitcoin cause. Um, the real danger, the real danger in Bitcoin is the volatility that exists there because people are buying on hype and it's very right now, as you saw earlier today, I mean, yesterday we saw a $10,000 swing in Bitcoin today. We saw another one. Um, these are massive swings in the value of a, of a, of a currency. And so it, tread lightly, whatever you're doing, know what you're doing before you start investing. Yeah, Jason, one thing not to shift gears too sharply here, but I wanted to ask you about this. So I work in the plumbing industry and plumbing supply wholesale. And one thing I've noticed, and this has really been since COVID started, is that we have massive shortages in our inventory. Like we'll go months without having some of the most basic PVC fittings in inventory. And there's nobody in the company that has them. And then, you know, finally we get them in and then everything's running behind. And then it seems like every other week we're getting updates on our pricing that everything's up, you know, copper's up 10% week over week. Uh, you know, plastic is up 5%. And it's just every week our prices are just starting to steadily go up. And when I was seeing all these shortages happen where, you know, I'm waiting three months. Meanwhile, the orders aren't slowing down. People are still renovating their houses. They're still, you know, there's still new construction going up. There's baseball stadiums being built and they're buying massive amounts of, of, materials for this. But while all the orders are going on, it's tougher and tougher to get material. And we're waiting months for some of the most basic stuff, like I said. And in my head, it's like, okay, what what do I think should happen? It's like, okay, prices should rise to kind of slow this down, right? It's just, I mean, just basic supply and demand. Mm -hmm. And and uh, you talk to people in other industries. I have a friend who's a roofer and he said the same thing. Over the summer, they could not get shingles. And it's just, for some reason, you don't hear about this on CNBC or Fox Business or anything. You don't see it on Market Watch. But there's a real shortage problem going on with materials and prices are starting to get higher. I mean, just, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, what do you think, where do you think that ends? Well, let me ask you a question. Why is, do you think that's a, res, a result of a supply chain slowdown or is there some other fundamental factor that, that's causing the, the delay in the production and distribution of those fittings? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough to say. I think in the beginning it was definitely supply chain, supply chain shutdown. Um, you know, like just logistically trucks were running behind. There were all these things where people were, you know, your workforce is all of a sudden a lot of people staying home. So I don't know how much of it was plants being shut down and, and all those things. And then how much of it is, because it, it's not like commodities have gone up to that point where you can't get stuff. But I, and you know, I, you try to talk to the vendors like, Hey, can you tell me when this product's going to get here? And then they tell you, Hey, it's going to ship on December 22nd. Don't worry about it. December 22nd rolls around uh, January 11th. And then mm -hmm. they just keep pushing it back. And you could tell that they're all playing games that they just don't have the product. And I'm not sure at what level from production to final sale it's breaking down, but it's something that I've, I'm trying to understand because mm -hmm. there's not really a clear picture as to what's causing it. Well, you ask a really interesting question. And, and if you'd asked me oh, five or six years ago, I probably would have had a different answer for you. But we've got, uh, we've got some really recent information and, and examples that make this a really powerful question that, that you just asked, which is basically, what should happen in the absence of enough goods? What is the appropriate response? What should the market do? 
what governments tend to do is, is they end up putting price freezes on things. They say, well, we've got a shortage in lumber and now the prices are starting to rise and that we've got people who are gouging the market. And so we're going to put a cap on lumber and you can't spend, you can't sell lumber for any more than X number of dollars. Um, that's a terrible thing to do. It, it's absolutely awful. What should happen in any good and well-functioning market is that prices should adjust themselves up to account for the reduction in availability of whatever commodity or good is in short supply. Um, but one of the things that happens that, that again, that, that creates a lot of problems is that a lot of times that's not what's best for the uh, for the distributor or what's best for the company that sells the product uh, or the the company that manufactures the product because they can get into some hairy problems. It also is not very good. It's not a very good regulator. So price is not a very good regulator over short periods of time. So take for example what happened in Texas here recently had this huge cold storm that came through. Nobody could supply the power. They literally didn't have the power to supply because it was just getting chewed up. So what did they do? They raised prices. They raised prices so high that people in Texas were getting bills for the month that were $3,000, $4,000, $5,000 for a home to heat their home for the month. And there was we're talking about this is just over a week time period that it was freezing. And of course, What's now going to happen? Do you think that people are just going to sit on the sidelines? No, they're they're already talk. Governments are already talking about. Do some of these companies are they going to be held criminally liable for shutting the power off? Are they going to be held criminally liable for price gouging? Because these people now have multi thousand dollar heating bills when many of them are on fixed incomes. And so there are times when this kind of like self regulating market really doesn't work very efficiently. Now, if you talk to an economist about this, he will still tell you, look, best thing to do is just look what do you got. You get, it's eight. It's fifty dollars a kilowatt hour. That's what it is. But in reality, in an actual functioning market, it doesn't work well. The company gets punished. People are up in arms and government steps in in order to sort of overregulate again. And so I think in this case, and I think what you're talking about is, is that we have a lot of supply chain problems. And because people were out of work for large periods of time and factories were shut down, we've got a backlog of production that needs to happen. And that'll solve itself out over, over the next six to eight months, probably. And what we should do in the meantime is accept higher prices so that people can make a determination for themselves as to whether or not they really need the fittings now and what that's going to mean in an adjustment to the overall budget of their project. Sure. Now, <clears throat> circling back a little bit to um, when we are talking about Bitcoin and, and how that's been, uh, you know, completely irrational behavior over the last few months. Um, I mean, I wonder is it if, because I'm kind of, I'm one of those people too. Like when I got that first stimulus from the, from the Trump bucks, I, I put it right into Bitcoin. I said, whatever, you know, I don't need their money, but might as well, you know, hedge against inflation with it. And it's, it's matured pretty handsomely over the course of the year. So I'm sitting here going, you know, like you said, these are unrealized gains. And even my wife keeps asking like, oh, what's it at? What's it at? You know, we're watching it tick up. And I said the same thing. I was like, this isn't real till we pull out. Like this could go back to, you know, what it was mm -hmm. overnight. Um, but I've, I've kind of been playing that over the last couple of weeks going like, this seems overvalued right now. Like, is this a good time to pull out and sit on the sidelines and wait for it to crash? You know, and, and, you know, I know your guess is as good as anybody's. It could go to a hundred grand before it corrects. Um, but yeah, I, I just wondered, there's been so much, uh, kind of, there's been a lot of big 
corporations and banks have been kind of pushing Bitcoin lately. Like Citibank predicted it would hit 318 grand by the end of the year. And it just makes you wonder why these big corporations and banks are are trying to push crypto. Um, and, and, you know, is, is it like a pump and dump type concept or if it's a, uh, you know, or if they have some other ulterior motive that we don't know about. But yeah, I know. I just remember you last time we talked, you said you were, you had some money in Bitcoin as well. And, you know, is, is that something you've considered like pulling out at this point or are you still kind of riding the storm? Uh, I have uh, my half my position is still in. So I, my average price on, on my buy in that happened last year is so, I, I think it's somewhere around eleven thousand uh, dollars. And so I've made a very healthy return um, at the prices we're at now. I cleared off uh, the last the, the I cleared off half my position and the last exit I made was at around forty two thousand. So I still have half the position working and I'm just watching the structure levels. And if we have a major breach of structure and the market shows a shift in trend, then I'm going to, I'll exit the balance of the position and look to re-enter sometime later. But I, I'm a, I mean, I've been doing this for a decade, so it's not, this isn't stressful for me. I just watch it every day. What I worry about is the guy who's buying at 45 because mm-hmm. he's in the run up and he's like, oh man, I'm going to get rich too. And what's going to happen to him is the same thing that happened to the guy who bought at 12,000 in 2017. He's going to lose 90% of his investment. Uh, and he doesn't have, he doesn't have the technical skill or education to know what's happening. Um, now the question of it, what's going on with the people who are promoting it. One thing I am sure of having been doing this as long as I have is that n- all of them have an ulterior motive. You take a look at uh, who was Microsoft. Was it Microsoft who said they bought a billion dollars? And you have Tesla, uh, Elon Musk, who says that Tesla bought a billion. But look at their average price. Their average price is like somewhere around $15,000, I think. And now, just now, they're coming out and talking about it. Okay. I, I would imagine that these guys acquired their position or built their position a long time ago. And what they're doing now is just they're exiting the position. Um, or they are uh, they're trying to further stimulate the position. Every time Elon Musk comes out, Bitcoin jumps ten thousand dollars right and so a coin and, and so he has a vested interest in keeping that high. Um, he may also have a really long term time horizon. I think there are a lot of fundamental things about Bitcoin that make it a good long term investment uh, if you can suffer the the whipsaw that is likely to come. Um, but I don't pay attention to anything anybody else tells me because there's nobody gets out in front of a camera and starts touting the value of something unless they have an ulterior motive. And many times they're doing it. They're what they're telling you is in direct opposition to what they're actually doing. There's no law, by the way. Uh, for a company or a hedge fund or a big bank to come out and say, we love Bitcoin. We think it's the greatest thing on earth and we're giving it a triple buy rating and then immediately get off the air and start selling into that wave of buying pressure, right? There's nothing that there's, that's not against the law. And so these companies and these banks do that all the time. I remember being a currency trader and watching uh, one of the big banks come out, and I won't name names because I don't want to get sued, but these <laughs> big banks will come out and they'll put a buy recommendation on a specific currency. And I'll be looking at the technicals going, I, this doesn't make any sense. And you'll just watch the currency just skyrocket, right? And then sure enough, a day later, sometimes hours later, there'll be some sort of negative news event that will send that currency plummeting. And you're like, dude, the, the, the banks did it so often 
that you just learned to any time to, to fade any of that news. Anytime the banks came out with one of those recommendations, you just picked your point to fade because you knew that bad things were going to happen. And so for all of your listeners, if you're getting any sort of news or any sort of direction from CNBC or, or any one of these other like big players in the markets, understand you're the guppy. Okay, You're the sucker. They're 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 banking on the fact that you're going to take their word as gospel while they end up doing something completely different and self-serving. Yeah, that is that is something that I've whenever whenever somebody like Citibank or U.S. Bank or Goldman Sachs comes out and recommends something, I always kind of, you know, approach it cautiously and watching all of the institutional support and just attention that Bitcoin's gotten over the last couple of years. I don't want to say I don't trust or I, I don't trust the attention. It doesn't mean that I, I don't trust Bitcoin or think that it has a future, but it's one of those things where it's like, okay, when it was running up to 50 grand, it's like I own some Bitcoin. And for some reason, I just wasn't really getting excited because I didn't, it doesn't feel real yet. And I think with something like Bitcoin and tell me if this is your belief as well, but it's when people are buying it because they see it as a real alternative to the US dollar and a real medium of exchange, that's when it's actually going to become valuable. Uh, valuable. Until then, it's just people buying it as this kind of speculative asset. I mean, is yeah. that what you think is happening? Yeah. So I, I think almost everybody who is invested now is investing for for speculative reasons. There, there's some there's some other reasons. Like big players have lots of different reasons to buy things. But your average Joe who's buying it, especially the Bitcoin uh, apologists, the advocates, um, they like to talk about how it's so funny because they'll come up with all kinds of rationales as to why it should be worth a hundred thousand or three hundred thousand or whatever. And I just I just kind of laugh because there's no way that they can know that. Uh, it's it's it is just another fiat currency, and it has a value relative to dollars or to euros or to pounds, whatever whatever currency you settle in, right? So if you have dollars and you take those dollars and you put them into Bitcoin, you could just as easily take those dollars and put it into euros or into pounds. But Bitcoin is a digital currency and it has some advantages over other fiat currencies in that there is a limited supply of them. Okay, they can only make so much of it, which is something that is not true of other fiat currencies. But Bitcoin has no inherent value. You can't look at it and say, well, you know, if you base it on these numbers or these factors, that's just a bunch of people running statistics and running numbers that have, have no real relationship in reality. It's people who want to believe that it should be worth 100000 or 500000 and who then go out searching for some sort of rationale to prove it to others. Instead, I look at it and, and I just look at the technicals. And I can look at the way the market has cycled since about 30, well, since really since about 20,000. And we've gone almost vertical. We had a little pullback at around 42,000 a coin down to 30,000. The market put in a double bottom right there at a retest. Uh, you call it, I call it a double bottom at about $30,000 a coin and then took off again all the way to 58,000. Almost all of the drive from 30,000 to 50 to 58,000 has been Elon Musk driven news. It's him coming out and touting it. Um, and then the note that uh, I think it was, I think it was Microsoft that said they bought a billion dollars worth. Um, but these keep in mind, these guys are sitting on massive amounts of cash. Like the, the, the amount of money that they have at their disposal right now, they don't have anywhere to put it. And so it doesn't make, it makes a lot of sense that they would take a big chunk of it and put it into an asset that acts as a hedge against hyperinflation, which is what we're seeing now, uh, or sorry, what I think we're going to see now. 
And so I, you know, the worst thing that I think any of us can do, especially those of us who present ourselves as somebody who actually knows what they're talking about is to make judgments as to, well, this is overvalued or this is undervalued. There's really no such thing, especially not in something like Bitcoin. There's only more expensive than we thought or less expensive than we thought. Uh, in, in, outside of that, there really is no way. Now you can look at a company like Tesla and be like, dude, I don't know how you have this valuation when you know when I can look at you comparatively to another car company that is you know sells much more cars has much more profit and is doing significantly worse than you like this does there's this doesn't jive but again it doesn't mean that Tesla's over uh, is uh, it doesn't mean that Tesla is expensive and the other car companies are cheap I, these comparisons really don't have any realistic value or any real value when you when you look at them in a, in a market like ours, especially in one that has been uh, propped up for so many years by a central bank that is just refused to let it go down and let it re and, and let it retrace. Sure. Yeah. So let's shift gears a little bit and kind of talk about what individuals can do to, to kind of prepare for uh, these treacherous roads ahead. Um, you know, whether there's extreme as, as they, you know, we're thinking they could be, or, you know, somewhere in the middle, um, you, you mentioned on your show about, you know, buying even like liquor and cigarettes as a, you know, a commodity, <laughs> yeah, which um, I was really <laughs> joking about that, but right. Yeah. It stores so, well, you can keep it for long periods of time and people are always going to want liquor and cigarettes. So, right. you know, my, my point was just simply that, look, if you're going to buy, buy commodities that, that store well, and that will appreciate mm -hmm. in value. Um, but, uh, I think here's what I really think, guys. I, I think the number one thing that you can do is increase your skill set, your education. Um, I said my my personal finance rules are really simple. There's two of them. Spend less than you make and save and invest the rest in things that you understand. Um, there is a there's a glaring deficiency in knowledge in this country. There's so much information rolling around. We live in the information age and yet people know almost nothing about the things that they discuss. And so what I would challenge everybody to do is first and foremost is just learn a skill. If you want to be invested in the stock market, great. Learn how to read a chart, you know, learn how to read an income statement and a balance sheet. If that's the way you want to, if you, that's the way you want to invest, if you want to be involved in Bitcoin, understand the market and, and what drives it, understand human psychology, which is really what all markets are. Um, and then secondly is do your best to control the source of your income. That's, that's my second thing is just at the end of the day, all the tax incentives, all of the, all of the rules are set up to benefit people who own their own companies and don't work for somebody else. And so if, if you don't have a side business right now, get into starting one, start figuring out what you really love or what you'd like to do, and then go gain the skills you need in order to start doing it for yourself. And then finally, I always say, make your income mobile. We live in a digital age. We live in an age where people now more than ever are able to work from anywhere they want to in the world. Um, set your business up so that you can go anywhere when the time comes, because there's a good chance. Let's say we do worst case scenario does happen here and we end up having hyperinflation. There's a there's a decent chance that not every single nation across the globe is going to experience that. And if your income is both if you both control your income and it's mobile, you stand a, you can just get up and move and you take your income with you.
and you can move to another country, another place where they don't have the problems that we end up having here. Uh, and again, I say that hoping that we don't have those problems, but it is, it's serious enough that I'm, I'm talking a lot about it and I never have before. I've been, I've been podcasting and, and teaching, I've been teaching trading for 50, for 10 years now, 12 years now. I've been doing a podcast for seven, six, six years. And I have never, ever once come on and told my people, hey, b- start being afraid of hyperinflation. Uh, I, I think is a, a clear and present danger now that everybody needs to be keenly aware of. And uh, and I know people who listen to your show are probably already cued into that, but I just want everybody to know I don't throw that out lightly. I, I, I really do see a concern here, and we need to be taking practical steps right now to prepare ourselves for uh, a potential really negative downside. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, you know, since I went down the kind of Austrian economics rabbit hole about five years ago, uh, learning about the Kiwi program and how much the scale of it since 2008 and how how big it was and how the amount of money produced and then knowing all of that and then watching what's happened the last 12 months. It's something that like I dearly hope to God that Austrian economics is completely wrong, right? As somebody who's 26, who's, you know, I, I'm trying to start a family soon in the next few, few years of my life. It's like, I really don't want to deal with this. You know, I kind of like my job. I like my life the way it is right now. And I know there are a lot of kind of doomsday collapsitarians that are kind of licking their chops at this day to come. But I think it's a lot darker than anybody who even pretends to to look forward to it is is realizing. You know, it's it's one of those things that, I mean, I, I really do hope we're wrong. I really well, do, I, but I just I don't see that happening. I hate those kind of people because those people those people only want to see a collapse so they can wag their finger at everybody else and say, see, I told you so. See how right I was. See how you should have listened to me. They have no idea what a, com- uh, what a country who goes into a state of hyperinflation or sees a government collapse into, into civil war and strife looks like. I happen to know what those countries look like because I, I, I worked in them for five years. Uh, you know, it is no place that you want to be. It is nothing that you want for your children or your family. Like we should do, we should do everything in our power to prevent that from happening. But you and I, as individuals, have very little control over what governments and central banks do. We essentially have zero control. The only thing we really do control is ourselves. And so we can put ourselves into a position where we have the freedom, the financial freedom, the, the mobility freedom um, to move away. If you guys remember, I've, I've talked about this on my show, but I started covering the collapse in Venezuela when they started to see the hyperinflation. And I remember reading an article and I reference it over and over again now because they were interviewing some of the folks. And this was long after years after hyperinflation had set in and the government had gone in and they had put in price controls and it just got worse and worse. They developed this underground black market. You couldn't buy anything in the stores. And they were asking these people who are out of work and they said, hey, you know, have you had any luck finding a job? Are you do you have a job? He says, of course, I don't have a job. He said, there are no jobs here. All the wealthy people left. And I think we we live under this misconception that, oh, this could never happen here. Oh, no, no, no. Or there'll always be rich people in this country to pay taxes. There'll always be rich people to, to, to provide us jobs. And the truth is, no, the rich people don't stay around and get fleeced. They see the writing on the wall. They pick up stakes. They move on. They protect their families and their future. And you and I, 
And everybody listening to this show has a responsibility, not just not, not maybe not just a responsibility, but an obligation, a duty to our families to do better and to not be in a position that when these countries, when our country makes bad decisions, that we're not able to combat them and to and to protect our families. And so um, I I really, really have a strong distaste for people who are excited about the idea of uh, the dollar collapsing or the, the U.S. government collapsing in on itself. These, these are awful, terrible things that none of us should want. Sure. <clears throat> yeah. You know, the one thing I've really learned, too, uh, through all this was not only do things not tend to you know go in the direction that you'd expect from an Austrian economic level right away. But also that they, you know, things take a lot more time than than you'd think. Uh, for instance, you know, when when they first started doing the COVID uh, stimulus packages and all that, um, I had just sold a house and I, I had some some cash in the bank. And then the first thing I did was try to get the get the out of dollar bills as fast as I could. So I, I went into Bitcoin and gold, silver, and you know, it was kind of hedged against inflation, just you know, secure assets more into precious metals than Bitcoin. It's, it's a little less percentage, but. Um, what I what I usually did was every summer I, I have a side hustle where I I buy snowmobiles. I, I live in Nor- Northern Illinois, so I usually try to buy package deals. Guys are moving. I buy two snowmobiles in their trailer and I stash them in storage buildings all summer long, and I piece them out in the winter time and and, and make pretty decent profit on them. Yeah, that's so a smart business. For, yeah, it's kind of fun side hustle and uh, works very well because the weather's predictable and the markets are too. But um, this year I panicked because I was like, nobody's going to want to buy a toy or you know snowmobiles with all this going on. So I tied up all my capital and in, in, you know hedges against inflation, and I was completely wrong because not only did uh, we get a record year of snow here, where it's been more than I've had my entire life, so I would have been it would have been selling like hotcakes. But also every single uh, like hobby tool, whether it's a snowmobile, dirt bike, uh, bicycles, everything appreciated like 60 percent. So I would have crushed it this year had I just mm-hmm. gone into my normal business, but never was seen that coming back in March. Well, and I wouldn't sell yourself short because what you you, did, you weren't necessarily wrong about uh, about the inflation, and and you made a you made a tactical decision based on the best amount of information, the best information you had available, and you didn't lose money. Right. So that that to me is always <laughs> a win. Uh, if I if I walk away from a thing and I, I didn't lose my shirt, but I. Uh, I think it's going to, but you're in a business, you're, you're doing stuff and making decisions based on some knowledge and expertise at, at what you're investing in. And, and the biggest mistake I see people making is um, they get involved in, in games that they don't know how to play. And, and it is like, I, I still work with traders. I still have a, what I, what I call my war room that I, I meet once a week with a group of traders and teach them technical analysis. And we go over trading we go over the stocks and, and charts and everything. And it is, um, it's scary when they first come, when you realize just how completely ignorant they are about the most basic things about how to read structure on a chart and, and understanding, um, you know, all these subjective terms, like they'll say, well, do you, do you adjust your strategy when a, when a market is, uh, you know, when a market is moving really fast? And I said, well, I've defined really fast for me. I don't know what that is. And, and so I think the most important thing for us as, as we move forward is that you're right. Things do tend to take longer than we think. Um, one, of the de- one of the negative things about economics as a, it's really a pretty poor judge of timing. 
you can look at economics over the long term. You're talking decades and decades and say, well, if this continues, we're highly likely to see inflation. We're highly likely to see a major recession. But knowing what the catalyst is going to be and when it's going to happen is virtually impossible. It's like being able to see the future. So what we have to do is instead of, again, instead of being deterministic and saying, well, this is going to happen, uh, what we should be is probabilistic, is to look at what's the likelihood that this will happen and what's the likelihood that it will happen in this period of time. And if we start looking at probabilities of success or failure rather than just a, a guaranteed outcomes, we tend to do a lot better. And so that's, I guess that that's the advice I'd give uh, as it relates to economics, because a lot of people, as I said, a lot of people who start studying Austrian economics, what they, they get a chip on their shoulder and they get, they get really high and mighty about all, everything that they know. They're like, oh, I've read a couple of, I've read Hayek, I've read a couple of, of economic books. And so now I'm smart and now I know more than everybody else. And I found this to be true with most libertarians as most of them really, really overestimate how much they really understand about economics and about markets. Um, but if you get them into a discussion, they'll talk like they're like they're definitive, like they know exactly what's going to happen and they know exactly what's going on. They're the smartest guy in the room. Um, and that's a dangerous position to hold because rarely are you ever the smartest person. And holding that position puts you at a deficit, even if you are the smartest person. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what we've learned, too, over the years is I I try to not listen to, to one person as like my, you know, my guiding light. You know, I've been listening to you for probably four or five years. Actually, Nick got me into you. Uh, he found you first. Thanks, Nick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, guys like Dave Smith, um, even, you know, occasionally listen to some Peter Schiff stuff, even though. He's not always 100% on time with the, his predictions. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hard on Peter, but I, 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 lo I love him. I love his, I, I love his economics. I, I think he's spot on. I, 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 his view of the world, I think, is correct. Um, he just hasn't done a very good job uh, with, his, with his funds of, of generating the kind of returns that his mouth would tend to suggest. Um, now, I have the benefit of not of being able to make suggestions without having a to expose a track record. So I recognize when I say that I'm somewhat, you know, <laughs> easy for you to mm -hmm. say. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but Peter's a very smart guy and, and he's worth listening to. And, and a lot of the guys in the, you're in the libertarian community, guys like Dave Smith and guys like Tom Woods. Um, uh, so Bob Murphy's a great example. Bob's the first one to tell you in 2008, he thought we were going to see hyperinflation. Um, he's a brilliant economist. He's a one, he's a great person. Um, but he missed the mark and that's okay. We, we take some shots. We make our best guesses and assumptions with the information we have. And sometimes we're right. Sometimes we're wrong. Um, I have learned over the years to be less certain. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's helped me immensely in making better judgments. Uh, but unfortunately what we want out of our out of our prognosticators, what we want out of our uh, out of our podcast hosts is is definitiveness. We we want somebody who is certain and who is willing to to live or die by whatever belief that they have. And I have found it to be much more profitable for me uh, to be a little less certain of of what I think is going to happen because we, because we we truthfully none of us really know. Right. Yeah. We, uh, we had Gene Epstein on the show twice. And, and the last time he was on, 
um, we asked him a lot of, um, I guess what he determined to be forecasting questions, which he, you know, he doesn't like having that on his record. He's like, well, you know, it's, I'm not, I don't like forecasting. He kept like, we try to get off those questions, but um, he, he did point out how Peter Schiff is, you know, since 2012, every year predicted a collapse and he's bound to be right eventually. And then, and then he'll, you know, say, see, I told you so. Yeah. Um, see, and no, but, I want to, sorry, go ahead. I want, I had one, uh, one thought on that though. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I like to balance because Gene seems to be way more, you know, optimistic in comparison to Peter Schiff, but both the guys are extremely brilliant and I, and I learn a ton every time I listen to both of them. Yeah. So, I mean, with Peter Schiff and I've been listening to him as well for years, first discovered him on Rogan, like, like nine years ago, I think, but you know, so he's like Jason said, like, I, I love his worldview and his, the way he breaks down, like just, you know, news and economic news. I think he's always spot on. I think where he goes wrong, obviously, is putting a timetable on all of his forecasts. And he's very into his own personal brand and pushing gold and all these things. And people see all of that and they just call him a con man when it's like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Because, you know, while he may be, you know, years early or sorry, years. Yeah, sorry, years early with his his predictions, at least he is predicting like hyperinflation and a collapse. If it does come, it's not like, oh, he was a stopped clock. It's like, okay, yeah. well, your stopped clock wasn't even predicting that, you know, where the other Austrians have been saying, yeah, this is a huge concern. Yeah, no. And, and, and I think it's for, see, it would do us well to understand incentives. So unfortunately, Peter is in the business of selling gold as a as a good financial asset. Gold is not a good wealth creator. It never really has been. It's Gold is a wealth protector. If you have a lot of money and you want to ensure that the value of your money stays relatively constant, then gold is a pretty good place for it to go. Even though gold historically doesn't even tether itself very well to inflation. It, I mean, you look at the charts, they don't lay over each other very nicely. Um, but Peter's, Peter's biggest problem is as near as I can see it is because that's what he sells. He has to be constantly predicting the end of the world, right? Because if not, why would I be in gold that gives me virtually no, like substandard returns against almost any other asset class, right? Um, unless there's a very, unless you get it during a very narrow time period. Uh, and so, I mean, again, he's, his economics are great. His ideas are great. The way he breaks down the news, I really like that. But if you're getting your financial advice from him, you should look at what his financial track record is. Um, and and his in, he's not incentivized to be, uh, I guess, to he's not incentivized to to share both sides uh, and to be objective. He's just not. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the, the other thing, you know, Nick and I had talked about when, you know, we were to invest when predicting against hyperinflation was. Kind of like, you know, when you were jokingly saying uh, alcohol and cigarettes, which is, you know, only halfway a joke, we were saying like, now Nick and I had a conversation back in like March and, and Nick brought up, you know, should we just go buy a bunch of Craftsman tool sets, you know, just commodities where people need, you know, and just, we try to think of what, what where would the money go if, if people needed things and where would you, you know, not lose your ass, you know, and yeah. it's, it's a, I mean, it's mental gymnastics trying to, just trying to figure it out and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's anybody's guess, but See, it is very, I very scary times. 
Yeah. See, I, I always, I, if people ask me, I say, just invest in yourself first. Now, mm -hmm. again, let's talk about incentives. Like I'm incentivized to tell people that because I'm actually in the business of teaching people how to monetize what they know. Um, that's a, that's a big part of my business. The other part is, is helping companies, uh, uh, you know, with their marketing and their branding. But a huge chunk of my business is teaching people how to monetize what they know. Um, and so, of course, I'm incentivized to tell people that, but I really do believe that that's one of the best places for you to go because those skills, if you choose them correctly, the skills that you're going to build, um, those will help you in, in an environment where, you know, you really need to have a rare and specialized skill in order to be able to make any money. Um, the, the less rare, the less specialized your skills the less high in demand those skills are, the harder it will be for you when the layoffs come, when the hyperinflation comes. You will not be able to adjust your salary quick enough. Your boss won't be able to. Um, but you will be able to, as a business owner with rare and specialized skills, you will be able to adjust your pricing um, accordingly as, as inflation sets in. So it gives you just, again, it gives you a little more freedom rather than trying to figure out, well, man, should we pick to, you know, should we pick snow blowers or craftsman tool sets and where are we mm -hmm. going to store all this stuff? Right? right. Instead of having a, an entire basement full of Jack Daniels and palm alls, it, it might be a good idea to have a couple of, a couple of skills under your belt that are really high demand skills that you can use to buy some cigarettes and some booze when things get really hard. <laughs> Sounds like a hell of a party. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's how we do it yeah yeah it's, it's wild though i mean I, you know like i think I, I told you last time i got i got four small kids right now so that's my biggest uh concern is is you know what you know what can i do to protect them because you know 10 years from that from now my kids will you know be teens and preteens you know so I'm, it's yeah. gonna be uh you know they'll still be leaning on me pretty heavily and it's a really crucial time for me to be make sure i'm making the right decisions financially and um you know put my spending my time you know most valuably, whether it be working on side hustles or like you said on your show uh, today about, you know, how many dollars you can try to accumulate right now before things get out of hand and put that somewhere mm -hmm. safe. Well, it's scary, isn't it, man? Because I, I got four kids, too. And I, I think when I was a kid, you just figured that, you know, mom and dad had it figured out and we could become adults and we realized, dude, we ain't got anything figured out. And and you, you're trying to figure out, you know, that you got these four little people who rely on you. And um, uh, I don't know if your wife works or not. I don't think your wife does, doesn't work, does she? I'm not nope. outside the home. Okay. Nope. Yeah. So you, you got five people who rely on you to make sure there's food on the table and a roof over your head. And um, that's a lot of stress on a man. And, and I just, I, I feel you and I feel that because I, I deal with the same thing every single day and, uh, and I worry about this stuff as much as anybody does. And so, um, I, I, I know a little bit about it uh, and, and I can, I can, I can look at the world because I've been in the markets for so long and see kind of what's happening, but I don't know that I'm any better equipped to know what's going to happen next than the next guy is. I, I think most importantly, I'm just trying to do the things that are going to, again, give me the highest probability of being able to weather whatever storm life throws in front of me. Yeah. And I mean, when you talk about investing in yourself, that's a message I always, it always resonated with me. Like it always makes sense. Like, okay, if you're in a post-apocalyptic world, even it's like, you better know how to fix a car or do something useful that, you know, you can excel at. 
but it's always like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the spiel, but where should I put my money right now and protect it to have some crazy thousand percent return? But it seems like, especially over the last few months, that original message of investing in yourself has really been hitting me home. And I think you brought it up, brought it up on your last show as well, where it's like, okay, you're, you're young, you're in your twenties. You don't have that much money. Even if you have a 500% return, do the math. How long is that going to last you? And it's like, I'm looking at myself like, yeah, it's like, even if all of my, you know, gold and silver and my crypto just takes off, it's like, that's not going to, that's not a, a retirement fund. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not going to last you very long. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, how do I position myself to actually thrive in any environment and be adaptive rather than okay, how can I try to multiply what I already have? You know, like a squirrel saving nuts for the winter. Yeah. You make a really, you make a really good point. It's like, um, I, I remember <laughs> this, is, this will sound terrible, but it's like you, these young folks come around and, and actually even, even people who are my age in their forties and fifties, and they really haven't saved much for retirement. They got 30, $40,000 that they're, they've set aside, um, that they, and, and they're like, man, what should, what should I do with my money? And, you know, if, if, in case some of this stuff happens, I don't know. And I'm just like, I'll put it in a money clip. I, it, it, there, there's just not enough there for you, you even you're just not going to make the kind of return ever on that money um, in the years that you have left that it, to make a big difference. The best thing you could do it is invest it in yourself because that's going to return um, that can return a 10 X in very short periods of time. I don't, I don't think we, let, let me phrase this differently because I'm getting a little jumbled up with my words, but this is the way I looked at it. When I, I worked as a, a sheriff's deputy, I mowed lawns for a living after I got out of the Marines. I did a lot of really crummy jobs, never had a penny to my name. The first time I ever had a dollar to my name was when I went overseas to be a military contractor. And for the first time in my life, I was able to sock away, you know, uh, 20, $25,000 that was sitting in my bank account. And um, I, I struggled for years and years and years to try and put some money together. And then when I started my first company, I basically spent all of my cash to start this company. And the first year that we were in business, I didn't do, we didn't do very much money at all. But the second year that we were in business, I did $786,000 in sales. Um, and because I was in a digital business, a little over 50% of that was pure profit. And so I went from being a guy who hadn't made more than probably $80,000 a year in his entire life to within two, in a two year time period of starting my business was now making, you know, 400, $300,000, $400,000 a year. And it went up from there within a couple of years. Now we're doing a few million dollars a year and I'm living a life as a 33 year old that I, I never thought that I would ever enjoy. And so there is a compounding effect to what we do. Investing in yourself, investing in 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 controlling the source of your income, it, it's not an incremental thing. It's not like, oh, this year I'm going to do this, and then I do a twenty percent next year, and twenty percent the year after that. No, it's it's exponential. There there is a there's no you've you've untethered time and money. And so that's why I'm such a vid big advocate is because I've seen it work in my own life multiple times where I've invested in my own knowledge and skill and then have gone out and been able to monetize that in a way that's allowed me to achieve exponential returns. I mean, I, I can remember one of the reasons I stopped trading and I'm sorry if I'm talking too much, but just yeah. jump in if I am. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons I stopped trading was because I'd been running my business for a few years and I realized that uh, in my best year, 
I might be able to generate a, a, a 50 or a 60% return on equity in, in my trading account. Um, I could generate a hundred percent return a year, a hundred percent return a month on ad spend in my company. And so I'm like, okay, I've got an extra hundred thousand dollars. Do I stick that in a trading account or do I go buy a hundred thousand dollars worth of advertising that I can then turn into $200,000 next month? It, it became, it just became, un, it, un, it didn't make any sense to spend, to be applying money to trading capital. That doesn't mean you don't spread it out and have investments and other stuff. I'm just saying in terms of my occupation, I realized that the skills I developed in mark as a marketer and as a brander and as an educator um, were so much more valuable than my skills as a trader. And I, I I never would have learned that if I hadn't taken the, the time to to invest in my own business, if I had just stayed on this trading path and tried to start a hedge fund. And so I would challenge everybody who's listening. I just I just sat down with a client of mine last weekend and she's in a um she's in a a, a very lucrative business. She's a um she's a doctor and she realized that she could make a lot more money um teaching people how to be doctors, not actually the education of doctoring, but running a doctoral practice, um, then she could make actually practicing medicine. And so when you look at that and you start to realize, man, there is a massive amount of money in teaching others how to get where you've been and we get where you are. Um, it really causes you to reevaluate where you put your time and attention. Right. And when you talk about, you know, kind of that compounding effect, um, you know, you said in your early 30s, especially I'm 30 years right now. So that that resonates with me pretty good. And I've noticed that, too, just, you know, throughout my 20s, it's like you have these these goals when when you're young. And I remember buying my first car for a thousand bucks and I sold that one, saved up some more money, bought the next one for three grand. And just every thousand dollars felt like these giant milestones, you know. Mm. And and then now it's like you keep going that pace all through your 20s. And now, now I'm 30. And now I'm watching my investments fluctuate way more than those cars are even costing by the day. And it's, you're so hardened to it. It's like, you still just want more though. You're waiting for that the six figure, seven figure investment to hit. Yeah. And, and then it's like, if I just saw my life right now, when I was 18 years old, graduating high school, like I got a beautiful wife, four kids, nice house out in the country. I'd be th I think I'd be crushing it. But right now I feel like I'm just at the starting line constantly just trying to, well, to I, keep moving ahead. Yeah. And it's important that we take time to reflect on that. I, I'm again, I, I, I say this just so that your listeners will just understand that it, there is a, there is a compounding, a, there's an exponential effect, you know, from 20 to 30, I was basically flat broke. I, I, I didn't have a, a really a pot to piss in between the age of 30 and the age of 40. I had, I had earned somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 million. Um, it can happen that quick. And so what you got to do is, is you got to be ready for the opportunity when it shows up at your door. You've got to be educated. You've got to, you've got to have passion for what you do. You've got to be working to do those things to control the source of your income. Um, because when, when that opportunity finds you and it will, you need to have the skills to be able to capitalize on it. Right. Nick, any closing uh, comments or questions? I mean, no, this is, this is really the stuff I wanted to talk about today. Just first of all, what's going on, how to try to make sense of it and conceptualize it and then what to actually do about it. So I think we successfully covered those topics. So, I mean, there's nothing in particular that I want to close on. Mike, if you have anything. No, I think, I think we got everything I wanted to pick your brain on. So Jason, if you want to go ahead and uh, 
do all your plugs, your book, your show, your uh, <laughs> workshops, everything you you're always. Um, yeah, no, no. I have. A, I'm not sure when this is going to air. This weekend, I've got a, a a big event that I'm I'm holding for anybody who's interested in in learning how to be a more influential communicator. And so we're going to be talking for a few days. First half day is free. Just go to um, JasonOnInfluence.com, and then I have two podcasts. I have the uh, Wealth, Power, and Influence, which you guys uh, know about, and I also have a new one we started this year called the Freedom Accelerator Podcast. And of course, you can get those where wherever you listen to your podcasts. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's always a great conversation. And, um, and uh, yeah, I just, I'm, I hope somebody got some value out of this. Absolutely. Jason, thank you so much. Thanks, man.